this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains and globalization and the effects these developments have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. Today we will be talking to Trevor Dempsey who is Director of Customs and International Trade Services at BDO Ireland. Uh, Trevor is a Customs and International Trade Specialist with over 15 years of experience across multiple industry types and has represented clients in industries as diverse as medical devices, IT, automotive, locomotive and FMCG. Um, his areas of specialization include export licensing, uh, customs compliance, international trade compliance, and, and others. And some of the speciality services include auditing, troubleshooting, ISO quality management, international trade compliance, and consulting. So, uh, Trevor, delighted to have you with us today. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for the welcome, Patrick. I'm very much happy to be here. Great. Could you tell me, Trevor, to uh, to kick off in overview uh, about your background and, and your career to date? Sure. Uh, my career to date, uh, I'm, I, I'm a new director to the BDO, Customs and International Trade Services team. I've worked with BDO since late uh, 2019. Uh, in that time, uh, I've represented uh, clients in their Brexit readiness and then into their uh, Brexit execution and optimizations. Uh, we've, we've helped a lot of clients for that difficult transition uh, where the immediate um, issues were around the likes of being able to get product shipped and delivered. And that's changed slightly into an optimization of spend and time. Uh, prior to that, uh, we um, developed a customs declaration system. And um, before coming to BDO, I worked with, with industry. I worked in pharmaceuticals since 2016. Previous to that, I was with a, a freight forwarder since uh, 2007. And I was with a, a an IT company since... 1999. Um, within that IT company, I switched from a technical lab-based um, speciality into international trade, specializing in licensing around the 2005 mark. And then I got into customs when I went to the logistics industry and I became a customs clearance manager uh, primarily, but also started helping clients, their clients, with optimizations and programs or, uh, surrounding international trade. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose where that progressed uh, when I got into pharmaceuticals was I got a general overview uh, working in freight forwarding. Uh, and then when I got into pharmaceuticals, it became really, really specialist. You know, we, we started looking at specific um, programs that would assist and I suppose no matter how specialized you get or no matter the uh, particular area, when you're working in international trade, there's principally three areas that you're looking at. You're either looking at costs and how you might reduce whether it is uh, duties or administrative spend, or you're looking at time, how you can best put in practices that are going to avoid 
or minimize the delays at the borders or else you're looking at compliance mm-hmm. where <clears throat> when you're happy, relatively happy with the spend and you're relatively happy with the uh, delivery times or the shipping times, your last hurdle that you want to make sure that you can sleep well at night is your compliance program, making sure that either the activities that you're carrying out or else that are being carried out on your behalf are done so in a way that's not going to have a knock-on effect or uh, uh, an effect down the line when uh, the custom services come to audit your uh, documentation. It's an interesting um, career progression through pharma, IT, freight forwarding, and so on. So going back to the, to the very beginning, where, where did it all start? So your, your educational background was in, in what area? Was it in one of those or something different? Well, it, uh, my educational level, when I, when I first studied, I studied audio engineering, uh, but I was working in uh, a, a chemistry lab. So I, I continued working in labs because, um, yeah, the audio engineering, there wasn't a huge amount of work out there. Yeah. So I worked in uh, labs uh, from a, a chemical manufacturer and then into IT, and unfortunately, I was working as a, a failure analysis and reliability technician uh, for uh, IBM way back when. And uh, unfortunately, that business unit was moving over to the Far East. So uh, IBM were, were, and still are as far as I can see, a fantastic uh, organization and allowing you retrain and redirect your career. So um, the opportunity came up to be an export regulations, uh, initially an export regulations assistant uh, or administrator for their software group. Uh, IBM had acquired Lotus uh, at the time. So I got into that, a, a lot of retraining, a lot of late nights, a lot of tough questions and a lot of uh, really, really dedicated handholding by my predecessor. Um, you know, there's there's nobody who's progressed in a career that doesn't have a thousand people to thank, you know. Um, so and I certainly did. And uh, definitely my first manager at that time, Catherine Mooney, was it was somebody who really helped me through that uh, that period. And um, so I got involved in that export licensing. As I said, the, uh, we were looking after the software section. So realistically, uh, the the license aspect of that business fulfillment was critical because even at that time, and this is about 2005-ish, over 90% uh, of the product sold was electronically delivered. So there was no tangible transfer uh, across borders, but there was the same scrutiny on the uh, export regulations. And so it, it really got you, uh, it got you um, thrown in the deep end in some ways on the export regulations aspect of international trade, um, particularly uh, where uh, software can be designed in one part of the globe, uh, can be hosted in a totally different part of the globe, sold from another, and then bought from another again. Hmm. That a kind of uh, one to many. Um, sales approach uh, became um, really, really vital to know exactly who you're dealing with and what you're dealing with and what their uh, end purposes was. 
Um, interesting. Uh, it's an interesting career progression. And obviously along the way, you've had to learn lots of quite detailed technical stuff. But what what would you say were the kind of core um, uh, transferable skills that you had or you developed that stood to you all the way through those different technical appointments, if you like? Well, uh, I, I do believe the, the analytical approach that I would have had, uh, that I was a lab assistant at the age of 18, and that uh, analytical and fault-finding and that um, detail-oriented uh, approach to any problem as it's presented or any explanation as it's presented was uh, really stood to me. Um, because when, when you're getting into the finer detail like that, and there's at least five layers of questions that you need to get through, accepting what's in front of you, it's, it's, it, it can be attractive sometimes, but it doesn't always pay the dividends that you hope. So I've always felt that being able to look at a problem statement and having uh, not only the right uh, the right process for uh, going through it, but the right mentality for applying to that process, I think has always stood to me. And you, you, I think, I think you told me um, uh, when we spoke previously that you've uh, taken up a new position within the organisation recently. So, what, what are your what are your main responsibilities in your current role? So the, uh, I suppose, Customs and International Trade Solutions uh, are, are pretty traditional in their scope. You know, what we try to do is we try to deliver programs that uh, save you time or money or increase your compliance. Where I'm focusing on our um, deliverable programs now is try to marry them with uh, digitalization of, of data and trying to come up with uh, solutions where that are upscalable um, to you know to, to use the, the systems that people have at the moment or to marry two or more different systems that they can achieve more um, savings more uh, whether time, or money or achieve better compliance uh, with tools at hand. So it's about looking at the tr uh, traditional solutions, but looking at them through the lens uh, with new uh, technologies and, and new data solutions that are available to us. And typically, uh, what kind of companies are your clients and how are they better off after they've been working with you? Well, I, I suppose, there, there are uh, some uh, uh, clients that we have that uh, that um, their problem statement is almost defined by their, their new traders because of Brexit. So uh, with that type of uh, uh, company, uh, they, what they need is a solution that helps them achieve their primary goal of being able to ship. And we've done a lot of that. But then we have another... Uh, type of uh, company that is has expanded their international trade because of Brexit. And so it's that expansion of international trade where they already had some experience and basis of international trade. But because of Brexit, what it's done is it, it's increased 
uh, the level of, let's say, transactions, whatever else. So where they wouldn't previously had um, uh, a need for an automated solution, now they're starting, it starts to make sense for them. There's a, a critical mass, if you like, uh, of transactions or whatever else. But also, the more transactions they do, uh, the more difficult it is to keep their hands on the compliance program. <clears throat> so uh, what we've seen uh, through that mix is that we've, we've been able to uh, design an expanded solution that not only uh, suits their present needs, but can work backwards as well to the more traditional uh, shipping methods, because you don't want post-Brexit, you don't want two uh, parallel um, processes. One is purely for Brexit and one for your more traditional international trade. You, you know, it, it, it expands into one in a lot, an awful lot of ways. You know, the export declaration or the import declaration is required, transit, whatever else. So, and, and that's what we've seen a lot of. Okay. And Brexit is now very much back on the agenda. In fact, uh, this morning over breakfast, I was listening to the latest um, podcast uh, from Brexit Republic, you know, Tony Connolly and these guys from RTE they have a very good um, uh, podcast on it. So what, what, what do you think um, are the implications now of this proposed UK legislation on the Northern Ireland Protocol that I think it's had its first reading in, in Parliament and, you know, were it to become law next year or, or so, what do you think the implications of it would be? Well, I, I genuinely think the implications could be huge in the sense, well, in the sense that the, the purpose from the UK side is to have a limited impact on uh, the, the trade and to essentially make it easier uh, for East-West trade. But um, I think it, it, the act, uh, as it's seen from the EU's perspective, is uh, to... Um, breach an agreement that was reached by the very same people who are writing this new legislation. So I, I think that uh, whatever whatever people plan for in this, you must kind of keep in mind that the EU is yet to um, define what their response is going to be in the fullness of time. So um, as you know. It's it's very hard to second guess what way that will be, and uh, if that would be in stages, or um, you know, if that would be as a a suite of measures that the EU would publish. I mean, <clears throat> at this early stage, uh, the EU have, have essentially said that nothing is off the table, so we we are all in speculation. Uh, the 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 worst outcome is that everything defaults back to being uh, what would have been uh, classes in no-deal Brexit. And uh, all of those plans that traders had to put in place for that no-deal scenario, what did they look like? Um, it, brings, it brings back all the uncertainty that we thought was behind us, because I, I think, in effect, it gives British ministers to change whatever they want, whenever they want. So that kind of opens a can of worms in terms of companies won't really know what they're going to want and when they're going to want it, right? Well, yeah, yes, but um, uh, at, its, at its most extreme, 
uh, you know, uh, industries will always tell you that they, they can work with most things except uncertainty. Uh, it, it does, it, uh, it really hurts any time of uh, long-term strategic planning. So um, I, think, uh, I think that what Britain and the EU will need to work towards in the very near future is a, a workable pathway for, uh, for this or uh, to reclaim ground. I, you know, I, um, it's, you know, it, it's very hard to second guess what way uh, political um, uh, winds are going to blow. And, uh, you know, I think for businesses' perspective, the, probably the best way that they can do it is uh, keep on acting in the here and now, uh, because these are the only rules that we have at the moment. Um, yeah, you know, not to panic, but to kind of you know, keep one eye on the long-term future and see and try to make a call of... Um, what did, what did we put in place prior to Brexit that we could review or, um, you know, blow the dust off to see how well we could implement it or how quickly we could implement it? 93.9, Dublin South FM. And, and up to now and independently of what they might do with this um, latest uh, legislation, but just up to what we have been operating with uh, in recent times, what kinds of uh, surprising or unforeseen consequences have businesses that are trading either with the UK or through the UK had, had to deal with? And how have you been able to help them to overcome some of those challenges? Well, <laughs> I think one of the most uh, surprising things, well, not surprising, it, it was there all along. But uh, one, uh, one of the issues that's arisen again and again has been the use of uh, Inco terms DDP, which is delivery duties paid, and uh, Xworks uh, EXW. The prior to Brexit, um, a supplier in Ireland could have delivered to the UK on a DDP basis, uh, because within the EU context, that just meant delivering to door. Whereas post-Brexit, it now means that you're responsible for the export declaration in Ireland and the import declaration in the UK. And so it's about getting yourself set up in the UK to uh, actually complete that import declaration and then get yourself that registered and get yourself uh, an EORI. Um, And I I I think one of the things... Uh, that really caught people on, on the hop is just what that entailed in the post-Brexit reality. So we were we work a lot with our UK colleagues uh, to get people uh, registered on both sides of the water so they can actually um, complete these declarations on the uh, import side, um, you know, so they can act as importer or else if they're buying on an export basis, they can act as the export out of the UK and into Ireland. Uh, that's been, uh, I think, the most, um, it, it, in terms of numbers, uh, in frequency uh, and uh, urgency, that's been probably uh, the biggest thing that we've done uh, for clients at the moment. There's been uh, a few other things where, um, 
the exporter was not aware, uh, particularly in foodstuffs, where the exporter was not aware of the SPS requirements on the import side uh, and so on and so forth. And we've had uh, a few false starts now on SPS in, in the UK. Now, luckily, we've got short-term uh, certainty on that now. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about that. So they, they've postponed the introduction of controls and checks on their side several times now, I think. Several so. times, yeah. What, yeah. Is the, what is the current status and what will it mean for Ireland-based companies when they actually do come in? Well, so uh, they're probably not going to uh, stay away forever. Um, so the, the way we were preparing for it uh, last year for the uh, implementation was essentially we're going to have to have a pre-advice and a veterinary certificate uh, prior to the export. So uh, on certain foodstuffs uh, and certain uh, uh, materials. So um, one of the things that uh, we had initially talked to uh, the Department of um, Agriculture was how many vets are going to be available and, and where they're going to be available for. Um, particularly what was going to be the, the case where um, a producer sends goods to a distribution center and then the distribution center uh, sells to the UK. Who will be responsible then? Uh, will it be the producer or will it be the distribution center? So thankfully we've got a wee bit more room now we've uh, i think we've got until uh, mid or late next year to get this sorted so uh, for the short term we've got certainty but i would um, uh, i would imagine uh, that the department of agriculture uh, are working hard that when we do go to implement the measures that they are as uh, streamlined as possible We'll still need a veterinary sign-off prior to export uh, of certain goods, which is uh, inevitable in the long term. Um, yeah, I, I ask almost everyone who comes on uh, the show this next question about globalization, not kind of presupposing that they're necessarily experts in the field of global affairs, but just to get that kind of layman's perspective. So um, what, what's your view on where we're headed with this process of economic globalization that you know grew rapidly, say, from 1990 after the fall of the Berlin War up until maybe 2010? Then it slowed after that, then it flatlined, and then maybe even going backwards now. So we've had Brexit, we've had COVID, we've war in Europe. So what's your own view? Do you think, is this a, a blip? Is it a change of form in globalization, or are we actually in reversal going backwards? I don't think we will go go backwards. To be honest, my, my, my own view, and uh, obviously this is purely my view, is that... Um, for for its woes, uh, we will never want and expect less than we want and expect today. So uh, if even uh, the uh, looking at globalization through a, 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 a more almost a more nationalist uh, lens, if that means we have less access, and uh, I I think that that would temper uh, the reversal. Uh, I do. Uh, I've, I, I think that worldviews on on globalization are typically 
cyclical. You know, they, they will rise and fall and we're probably at a, a wee bit of a fall at the moment. But I, I don't think that would hold in the long, long term. Uh, I do think that there is an aspect of globalization, particularly international trade globalization, where there's going to be an increasing thought on uh, environmental impact on uh, the, uh, the global um, trade routes and uh, what our expectations for, say, uh, year-round availability or high-volume availability, what uh, impact that actually has, uh, particularly in the uh, in terms of uh, transport routes on uh, the environment. And uh, I can't see that particular consideration ever lessening uh, than it is at this point now. And at this point now, it's far more of a consideration than it was 10 years ago. So within the cyclical nature of globalization, I think that our, our, um, there's going to be a common thread uh, on our considerations. And I think now that uh, with the international movement of goods, uh, the environmental impact considerations are, are going to steadily increase. So as we uh, get into the last uh, couple of minutes, I might just change tack and ask you a couple of more kind of um, personal questions. So when you're not working and thinking about international trade and Brexit and globalization, what kind of things do you like to do in your spare time? Yeah, I do. I, I run a lot uh, at the moment um, and I will be... Um, I hope to uh, slow down uh, at some stage. Uh, so I do run a lot. Um, I spend some time uh, with my, my partner, Carla, and uh, whenever I can. Again, uh, one is sometimes at the detriment of the other, unfortunately. And um, I spend my weekends in the west of Ireland uh, with my kids. So uh, I, I spend a lot of time here as well. So uh, unfortunately, there's very little in the way of sitting down uh, at the moment, but I'm hoping to change that soon, Pat. Okay. And when you're, uh, are, you, are you reading anything or listening to anything currently, you know, like books, audiobooks, podcasts that you'd recommend? Or that you, you, yeah, you, uh, you know, I just finished uh, uh, you know, the latest, uh, it's, it's a prequel book that I got uh, of Ken Follett. Uh, the, the name escapes me now. But uh, the Ken Follett's uh, Pillar, uh, Pillars of the Earth was one of uh, the greatest. It's a kind of uh, medieval historical novels. Yeah, yeah. I, and it, but it was uh, uh, so full in detail that it was, uh, and the, the narrative uh, throughout was just fantastic. Uh, so I, I got a prequel to that and I just finished that recently. So I really enjoyed that one. Excellent. And where can people find out more about, about BDO, about yourself, contact you and so on? So um, you can contact me directly at tdempsey at bdo.ie. Uh, you can go to uh, BDO Ireland's website and we've got a link for the Customs and International Trade Services team there. Uh, my, uh, my manager's name is uh, Carol Lynch. Uh, she is... Uh, um, often on the airwaves too. So uh, what I will say is, uh, regardless of the size of your, uh, your enterprise, we do have a solution to, uh, to help. So if international uh, trade is something, is something that you are struggling or suffering or wish to improve, 
um, we in all likelihood have the person and the uh, solution for you. Excellent. And I guess people can find you directly on LinkedIn as well under your name, Trevor, uh, Trevor Dempsey. Uh, Trevor Dempsey on LinkedIn. Yeah, you, you, you can't miss me. Okay. So thank you very much, uh, Trevor. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, wish you the very best for the future, both professionally and personally. Perfect. Pat, thank you very much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks to our listeners also for tuning in and any comments or questions, just drop me a line on pdaily at albalogistics.com. That's P-D-A-L-Y at albalogistics.com. So keep well and stay safe.